many adults and young people lack the skills or training they need to get jobs that pay a family-supporting income? This means that their children are more likely to grow up in poverty, which can have a huge impact on their development. That's why the Casey Foundation invests in solutions that expand access to education, jobs, and careers for young people and working families. Today, I'm thrilled to discuss the field of social enterprise, an innovative approach that works to build successful businesses that focus on employment programs as well as profits. Joining me for this conversation is Carla Javits, the president and CEO of Red F, a California-based venture philanthropy that focuses on building social enterprises. Under Carla's leadership, Red F has expanded beyond its Bay Area home in recent years to now serve tens of thousands more people across the nation. To help grow their network, Red F has been awarded two prestigious Federal Social Innovation Fund grants by the Corporation for National and Community Service. Welcome to the podcast, Carla. Thank you so much for having me. Well, why don't we start by explaining a couple of terms for our listeners. Red F has been described as a venture philanthropy. Why don't you explain to us what venture philanthropy is? I'd be glad to do that. Uh, so really, this is a way to adapt a business investment approach that you know many people know about that venture capital might use or private equity. But instead of in the profit-making sphere, to bring that to the mission-driven investing arena, um, most important is the focus on results. So, you know, we set out very clearly with the organizations we work with what's to be accomplished. We measure progress and adapt the strategy and the investments in light of the results that were achieved. So. Venture philanthropy means that we carefully vet the organizations that might get the investment to make sure the leadership, the strategy are lined up with achieving those projected results, that we invest kind of flexible financial resources that are dedicated, again, to achieving those results, uh, and that we deliver kind of hands-on advisory services that are dedicated to supporting the organization's achievement of both the financial and social objectives. And maybe more from the seat of the funder, in our case, also managing our whole portfolio so we can maximize the results that we achieve. That's really how we define venture philanthropy. And so you're doing this in the area of social enterprise. Explain to us what social right. enterprise is. Yes, and that, you know, it's a term of art, not a dictionary definition, but here's how we look at it. Uh, you know, like a traditional business, social enterprises sell quality products and services to the market. They have to deliver with quality at the right price point and, you know, be able to fill a real niche in the marketplace. But unlike traditional businesses, social enterprises are taking their profits and they're investing them in helping people get a job and build the skills so they can stay in the workforce over the long haul. And, you know, the people that are employed are men and women who are striving to overcome some very real challenges that might include histories of homelessness, incarceration, substance use, sometimes mental health issues, 
limited education. And, you know, this includes young, young adults and, and older adults um, and f- many with either custodial or non-custodial children. Uh, and even though they're highly motivated to work, you know, they might not come in the door fully prepared to succeed. And that's, you know, that's where the so- supportive management practices and the services that a social enterprise provides uh, to the employees is so, so important. Um, you know, and it's, it's probably important to remember also that running the business side of this isn't easy because, you know, j- just relying on the social mission, you know, doesn't give them enough of a competitive advantage to win the customers uh, that they need. Uh, you know, and they have to compete on price, quality, and service. But at the same time, they're really focused on preparing their employees for a traditional job with their best employees moving on. Mm-hmm. So the people who run these social enterprises really have to be exceptional uh, to, you know, to run them really effectively. Hmm. So are there uh, concentrations of social enterprises in particular industries, or do they span all kinds of businesses? You know, they, the ones that we work with are in many different industries, uh, and it really depends, you know, on the locale and where the market opportunities are. But in general, you're trying to create lots and lots of jobs for people who maybe don't have very advanced skill levels and a lot of work experience. Um, and so it ranges from everything from you know, landscaping services, uh, outdoor, um, you know, sort of beautification types of services, screen printing, manufacturing, food service, uh, recycling, electronic waste recycling, Mm. deconstruction of buildings. Uh, There's really a wide array of products and services that are delivered. Are they typically started as social enterprises or are they other type, you know, a a regular for-profit business that decides it wants to add a, a mission focus to their work? Yeah, that's a great question. What we've seen generally uh, is that this is largely either not-for-profits or for-profit entrepreneurs who get interested in uh, adding something to their, you know, repertoire, especially for the nonprofits. Maybe they, you know, provide affordable housing or they've been providing some sort of workforce training, but they become frustrated that the people that they're working with are not doing as well as they'd like to see getting jobs and keeping jobs. So they might start a social enterprise uh, or a younger entrepreneur who maybe comes from a community where people experience these very same challenges uh, decides they want to start a business but they want to start a business with this social mission of really preparing, you know, people to to join the workforce. Um, so on the nonprofit side, we see it's a mix. Sometimes just an organization that starts up purely to run a social enterprise. Sometimes uh, they're doing other kinds of support services, or um, you know, things like again like housing, uh, and then they decide they want to add kind of a line of business to that. 
Hmm. So you said these businesses take their profits and uh, use them to help uh, build the workforce, uh, build the skills of the of the people who uh, right. are employed there. So talk a bit about how a social enterprise fits into the larger context of workforce development. Yeah, and I was glad. Uh, I'm glad to hear that question. So, you know, here's the reality: the traditional workforce system was not really set up to address these most serious employment barriers. I mean, really, over the years, the funding and the benchmarks for these programs are really about people who had been working and maybe their factory or or where they had been working shuts down in the area, they need some retraining, and then go back to work. Um, when those who have faced kind of greater challenges have been served by the workforce system, often what they get is maybe some help with their resume or interview skills, you know, kind of a brush up, or sometimes maybe some in-classroom type skill building, but not really real on-the-job opportunities, paid jobs in a supportive work environment that's meant to build their skills. That's not really what's been provided. Um, but there's a, a new mandate from the Congress when it reauthorized the Workforce Investment Opportunity Act, which is the big act that funds workforce programs all over the country, to try to emphasize a little bit more people who face more serious challenges, and especially young adults who are disconnected from school and work. And that, you know, kind of mandate, if you will, from the Congress, it's just beginning to permeate at the state and local level now. It hasn't really, you know, kind of fully been implemented. But you do see some really innovative workforce leaders in places I'd cite, especially like Los Angeles and San Diego, that are beginning now to invest in social enterprise as a way to better serve the workforce development needs of people who face greater challenges to getting into the workforce. Hmm. So are they getting other types of education or certification or credentials in addition to this on-the-job training? Many people do uh, take advantage of other certifications and the opportunity to get education, additional education, and many of the social enterprises are focused both on building the essential skills that people need and helping them gain some hard skills that the market values. But what I would say is that our role and the role of these social enterprises is really to help people get to the point that they're going to be successful in a regular company. And we're very deliberately working with the social enterprises to connect them with local businesses and bigger businesses that are interested in the well-being and the advancement of their employees. And I think where the disconnect has been is a lot of the people that we're seeing get jobs in social enterprise maybe would have gotten a job, but unfortunately also would have quickly lost that job mm -hmm. because they perhaps weren't fully prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And instead now they're able to keep the job and then take advantage of whatever training is provided 
uh, by the employer or made available more broadly in the community by community colleges or other training programs. So we're really trying to set people up for success so that they're able to continue, you know, what I think in the current economic environment, frankly, is really a lifelong learning need uh, in order to be, you know, really successful at work. Hmm. So what challenges do you see facing America's workers? You've talked about um, social enterprises connecting to those who might be harder to employ or, or needing people to understand this lifelong learning process. What kinds of challenges do you see people having in trying to get in and maintain jobs these days? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think... Look, here, here's the biggest, the biggest hill to climb is adequate wages, benefits, and working conditions that allow people to have a reasonable quality of life and support to take care of their children and their families. Um, and then, of course, just availability of jobs to those who face the challenges we just discussed, employers who are willing to take a chance on people who maybe wouldn't have traditionally fit into their notion of who was going to be really well prepared for employment. Um, you know, on wages, I, I was just reading, I guess some of the economists are saying productivity recently has not been increasing as much as they've seen in the past, and that that's to some extent been holding back employer willingness to pay more. Uh, minimum wage campaigns have started to shift wages a little bit. And frankly, there are several large corporations we've seen that have voluntarily started to adopt higher minimum wage standards across the board. Um, and, and I think this is really important, look at working condition issues like, you know, shift scheduling that, that really matter to families. If you change your shift every, you know, every week, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very hard to have a stable family life. So some companies are starting to look at that. Um, you know, I think obviously we know that in terms of availability of jobs for those who are entering the workforce, technology is having a big impact, like online shopping is having a huge impact on retail. Uh, environmental concerns are, you know, shutting down coal-fired energy plants, for example. You know, that's really changing what jobs are available. And especially for, you know, frontline workers. And I think the trends are, are likely to continue. Um, but, you know, when one door closes, another opens up. Uh, and, you know, we don't know what the jobs of the future are going to be, but we need more emphasis on this around, you know, thinking about entry into the workforce and advancement. And, you know, something I think is most critical here, maybe a challenge that I think we, we could better address is employer investments in their frontline workforce. We really need to see employers willing to invest in the management practices and the training, uh, and of course, consideration around family sustaining wages and working conditions, you know, to, to help people be successful uh, at, the, at the front lines. And, you know, as we, as I said earlier, you know, I think lifelong learning, not just sort of one-time degree acquisition, uh, is really going to be, you know, the watchword here. Hmm. So it makes me wonder if uh, regular companies are taking up some of the lessons from what you're learning. 
Yeah, you know, I we have seen employers increasingly interested um, because they, you know, as the economy is heating up, they are really looking for well-prepared employees to come in at the front line so that they can reduce uh, their turnover, levels of turnover, and they're eager to better understand how to uh, provide the kind of management and support in partnership with some of the community-based organizations that really help people to succeed on the job. And we've certainly seen a lot more interest there. Uh, and I think social enterprise in that sense is a really wonderful example of how to provide uh, support and at the same time, you know, kind of deliver on the business results that are required. Hmm. So Red F has primarily invested in its hometown of San Francisco, but you're now expanding your reach to Southern California and across the country. Why did you feel the need to scale so significantly? It sounds like there's interest across the board in your work. Yeah, it, it, another great question. I mean, you know, look, first of all, just the size and scale of the need is great. And it's really urgent. I mean, you know, this can literally be a life and death issue for people who, you know, you could imagine like are exiting prison and have no job options and, you know, therefore might return to crime or, you know, return to homelessness and, and you know, life in the streets, which is, which is really, um, you know, can put your life at peril. Uh, and, you know, a second reason why we wanted to expand is that, we have data from a big study we did with, uh, with Mathematica, a big research firm, that shows the powerful and positive results of this approach. So we saw, wow, this is something that really works. Uh, we haven't had a lot of things, uh, and Mathematica noted this, that really have worked for people who face these sort of significant challenges. So, you know, we know that this is something that, that seems to be having real results. And, you know, we know that there are social enterprises increasingly across the U.S. that are doing good work and are hungry for the capital and the advisory services to accelerate their growth and more kind of deeply impact the people who they're employing so that they really can go on and work and advance. So how have you gone about doing this, and, and what's uh, Red F's role in helping organizations uh, do this work? Yeah, uh, so, you know, first of all, you know, we worked closely with our board, of course, to consider the opportunity, what the possibility would be, and we established uh, uh, a new big goal with our board to help uh, 25,000 people go to work by 2020 in social enterprises that we support directly with funding and direct advisory service, and 25,000 people employed through some of our other slightly more indirect efforts around public policy, partnerships, et cetera. So a total of 50,000 employed by 2020. So I think that's, first of all, very important. We set a big, audacious goal, and then we're lining up our, you know, the work that we do in support of that goal. Uh, and, you know, the heart and soul of the work that Red F does is the funding and advising, uh, as well as, you know, developing the data and the evidence of results and sharing that broadly uh, 
to build a wider community that is capable of, you know, of doing this work and supporting this work. Um, very specifically, first we did a large-scale national competition that resulted in our big portfolio of 21 social enterprises. We tried to cluster these in communities where we saw there were lots of strong social enterprises, interest from the public sector and the private sector in both hiring and investing. And then a second thing we've done is provide smaller grants and advisory services to additional social enterprises around the country. And then we started a new accelerator. We also did a national competition for that. And we provided kind of a boot camp style leadership and business development uh, program for smaller social enterprises that we thought had the, uh, you know, the possibility of significant growth. So all of that meant that we touched about 60-plus social enterprises directly with money and advice uh, in 2016 compared to maybe the seven or eight that we did you know, prior to the launch of the strategy. Uh, and then we decided to go deeper in some communities to create kind of public-private partnerships, again, that could accelerate growth. And we started that in L.A. with a program we call L.A. Rise, now we're doing that in the Bay Area, and we're also looking at Seattle, Chicago, and some other places where we'll just go a little deeper, both with the money and advisory service, but also trying to create the partnerships with government and the business community that will allow this to really you know, grow farther, faster. Mm. So you mentioned advisory services. Are you advising these social enterprises on both the workforce development side and the business side? Yes, yes, we do, uh, you know, which, you know, depends. Sometimes we find an, or, an entity that's running a really successful business and it's growing and they can employ more people, but they're really not yet delivering the quality of management and support services that allow the person to really get that strong foothold into the mainstream business community and advance. So they need more help you know, creating the right kinds of sometimes trauma-informed care, you know, because a lot mm -hmm. of people who are coming into these jobs have experienced a lot of trauma in their lives, um, or other sorts of uh, connections to the mainstream business community that really allow people to, to advance and to, you know, to get those long-term jobs, so sort of the workforce development piece. Mm -hmm. Other times we find an organization that's tremendously strong on the trauma-informed care and the services and the support, but they're running a business that really could use sharpening up in terms of market, product, service, business planning, et cetera. And so we concentrate our advisory service there. So we do provide, as you said, that full spectrum of service, but we target it kind of where it's needed most, depending on the organization we're helping. Fantastic. Well, you have quite an ambitious goal ahead of you. Uh, you know, and business return for investment is often the measure of success. How are you all defining and measuring the success for your efforts? Yes. Uh, so, you know, first of all, we have our big goal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're counting. <laughs> you know, we want to see that a certain number of people uh, get employed. So we, we want that. But in terms of um, the, the, the people who are employed, 
you know, social return on investment has really been our hallmark, and we focused on a combination of social and financial results. So, you know, we want, obviously, the people who are employed to get jobs and, and move on, and we want the social enterprises to be sustainable and at least cover their business costs with their revenue. Um, and then we actually had Mathematica measure social return on investment, and we found that for every dollar spent by a social enterprise, there's $2.23 in returns to all of us, to society, because the social enterprises are earning revenue that offsets what would otherwise be public costs, you know, to support the, the social service intervention, if you will. Then there's the earnings of those employed, so their, you know, their earnings go up. And then there's the reductions in public benefits and services. So, you know, all of that adds up to a really fantastic, you know, social return on investment. That's wonderful. Well, I'm sure you get the chance to meet some of the men and women who have gained employment and opportunities uh, through these social enterprises. What's a story you've heard from them? What are they saying about this experience? Yeah, you know, it, it's really been interesting to talk to the people who get these jobs, uh, and I've met so many wonderful people who are so, uh, you know, just so happy to be able to contribute. Uh, and, you know, it was interesting, when I was at San Quentin not that long ago, we were talking to some of the men there who were coming out fairly soon, and interestingly, they all said they really wanted to work when they got out. But many of them, and these were, you know, fairly young men who had gone, unfortunately, to prison fairly early in their lives, um, wanted the, a first experience in a supportive work environment. They were a little nervous about initially, you know, starting out right in that, you know, kind of hardcore, competitive, uh, you know, environment. You know, and then, of course, when we speak to people who have gone to work in social enterprises, you know, you'd think the first thing they'd talk about is a paycheck, because a lot of them, you know, have extremely low incomes. But interestingly, generally, what they focus on is their pride in kind of doing an honest day's work, in contributing to their team, and in being productive, and adding value, and, and doing something good that makes their children and their families and their communities proud of them. Well, that's absolutely a great uh, return on that investment to be able to instill that kind of um, pride and, and experience in, uh, in folks who may not necessarily believe they've got that kind of future ahead of them. So, so thank you so much for the incredible work you're doing and for your partnership with Casey. And my thanks to the Annie Casey Foundation, because you have been tremendous partners down this whole road, and uh, we couldn't have done it without you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Carla. And I want to thank our listeners for joining as well. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, rate our show on Apple Podcasts to help others find us. You can also ask questions and leave us feedback on Twitter using the CaseyCast hashtag. To learn more about Casey and find notes for today's show, visit us online at aecf.org forward slash podcast and follow the Casey Foundation on Twitter at AECF News. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.